one time he was in a rush to get on a streetcar and he had a mishap and he fell and hit his head. And the story that's told in our family is that he realized after the accident that one shouldn't rely too much on one's head and the brain. And so after that, he decided not to read too much. But I also know that he read a great deal. So I thought, that's very interesting. He read a great deal, but he doesn't rely on his brain. And that had something to do, in my young 20-year-old mind, I thought, this has something to do with his Buddhism, and it has something to do with the person that I know as my grandfather, who is not just my grandfather, but someone who I look up to spiritually. When we turn to the teachings of Sinatoni, I think that we often find references in this regard specifically about what he doesn't know. And even though it's not written explicitly, there is an intimate connection between his expression of not knowing and what he said. But it wasn't just living in a kind of a sense of a philosophy of life, this German expression, philosophy, which is philosophy of life, because in Buddhism it's philosophy of life and death. Shinra states, according to Han Yishou, I have no regrets, even if I have been deceived by, deceived by my teacher and saying that I would be fallen to hell. The reason is that if I were capable of realizing Buddhahood by any other religious practice and yet found to hell the same and necessary, I might have dire regrets for having been deceived. But since I'm incapable of any religious practice, hell is my only home. And he proceeds this by saying, I really don't know whether the Nambutsu may be the cause for birth in the pure land or the act that shall condemn me to hell. This is towards the very beginning of the Tanya show. At the very end of the epilogue, Yuyan again cites Shinran as saying, How grateful I am that Shinran expressed this realization in his own person to make us realize that we do not know the death of karmic evil and that we do not know the height of the Buddha's compassion all of which causes us to live in utter confusion. So what I would like to do is just give some examples of this utter confusion and how it relates to embodiment. And, um, and some of the examples that's related to another aspect of embodied life in that, which is the life and role of teachers in the Shinto Buddhist tradition. Many of you know that we don't have children, but we have two cats, two black cats, two boys, Onyx and Taka, that we got from the Humane Society. And Orison Allison, our dog person, 
Rumi is more of a cat person, and she has converted me into more of a cat person. And I love those boys like they're almost human children, because they demand to be treated like human beings. <laughs> and as I often have opportunities to prepare for Dharma talk, some of you have heard about these cats. Because I think the sense of compassion that extends not just between human beings, but between humans and animals, something I've experienced firsthand with cats. But even though when I have a meal, I put my palms together in gusto and I bow, I don't think about the fact that the chicken I'm eating really, or the delicious salmon we have up here in the Pacific Northwest, really, they have parents, they have children, they have brothers and sisters. So I talk about compassion, but I'm confused. I'm confused. I don't really live that compassion. But in this tradition, precisely that person who is confused is the object of boundless compassion, of Amindasal, to bring us to the realization of the indestructible vow precisely because we are confused. Even in the Western tradition, that's why I'm limiting this criticism of this emphasis on being articulate and sharp with ideas and argumentation to what I call academic philosophy. Because even within the Western tradition, when we look back through time, we have many figures who emphasize the great importance of realizing that which is not this that which is not open. One of the most influential thinkers in the development of Western philosophy, philosophy of religion, uh, including academic philosophy, is a great passive thinker, Thomas Aquinas. And he wrote an enormous work, which is still widely read today, influences some of the most important philosophers uh, in recent years, and that work is called Summa Theologica. But what Aquinas himself considered most important in relation to his work is rarely mentioned, which is that after he finished composing this enormous work, which is thousands of pages long, it's after that that he had a breakthrough in his own personal faith his own religious self-understanding that was of the character of a religious experience. And when he had that experience, he said, actually, all the words in Summa Theologica are useless. It's just like a stack of hay that should be burned. But what is studied in philosophy? A stack of hay that should be burned. And I realized that I have had many great teachers who have said many great things. But at the end of the day, 
it's not what they said that left its impression deep in my heart, deep in my body, but it's who they were and who they continue to be, even if they have left this person. So one of my teachers was also one of my father's teachers, Lidadilas Mente, who was a great scholar of Buddhism in Japan, and a great Sing Buddhist. And after studying Japan for five years, I wanted to go say goodbye to him because he was quite elderly. And he lived far away in Himeji, and I was living in Kyoto. So he invited me to come over to his home, along with one of my friends, John, went to visit him. He was so frail for much of his life, and especially at the end of his life, that he could only stay sitting up even for a few hours at a time. So I want to be careful. We arrived in the afternoon. I only wanted to spend about an hour and leave, but he insisted on a thing. He insisted on staying for dinner. He insisted that we stay overnight. He was so enthusiastic, so passionate about us being there, and we didn't know anything. I don't remember. So we were there, we were talking for seven or eight hours. I don't remember a thing he said, just one line he said. But it's not the words he said. It's who he was in that moment. And he said, He said, I'm really looking forward to the time when you guys are 50. <laughs> but I was in my 20s. He was 84. He was not going to see me when I made it to 50. That to me, looking back on it, is embodying life and death. Because his boundless life was not limited by his physical mind and body. He had no fear of death. He had no attachment to life. And for that reason, he could fully enjoy life and death. Not just in that moment, but 20, 25 years in the future. That is to say, endlessly, endlessly, taking joy, taking care of us as the expression of bondless compassion, of the oneness of God, of life and death, of the presence of God. Also, another important teacher was Nishimoto Sosuke, who was a professor of education at Kyoto Prefectural University. But more importantly to me, he was a great Shingo's teacher. And as I was preparing to leave Japan, he had my wife and I over to dinner at his home, which impressed me by his quiet beauty and modesty, a great quality that he had. Again, it's not what he said, but something that he left in my heart and in my body. And he said, when you come back to Japan again, you should go see this person and this person 
and I'm thinking, well, I'm going to come see you. Why is he telling me I should go see this Buddhist teacher and that Buddhist teacher? Well, not long after I left, and while I was in graduate school, I got a message from his wife saying he had passed away. And suddenly I realized the reason he was saying, when you come back to Japan, you should go see this teacher and this teacher, was because he knew he was dying. But I learned through his wife, this was the way he lived his whole life. All of the funeral arrangements had been made, making sure everyone who needed to be included in different places were addressed. All of the final arrangements he had personally attended to, so that in the time of grief and difficulty, his wife, his family, would not have to worry about these things. It's not what he said. It's what he did. It's not really just what he did externally, but it was who he was that left such an unspeakably deep impact on this young, impressionable person. And another great teacher, who was a Zen master, Kobodinande, but also deeply knowledgeable about Shin Buddhism. And he was something like a 15th or 16th generation abbot of one of the most prominent club temples, the Okoni, of one of the greatest monasteries in Japan, Gaikoji. He was a Zen man through and through. But I was interested, I had an interest in Zen Buddhism. He had a meditation group and he allowed me to share time with him and invited me to live there to, to then I could work there, but they would house me, they would feed me, I could still go to school during the day and go and study. But because he was such a Zen man, and I came from not just a pure land background, but a ministerial background, he and I had some fights. <laughs> At one point my grandmother got really worried that I might convert to Zen Buddhism, and she wrote to me saying, you know, Mark, for generations, we've been seen Buddhist. Well, that's a, that's a different talk. <laughs> but then Master Kowori had other disciples who were drawn in different directions. And there was one disciple who spent many years as a monk, as a Zen monk, but ultimately rejected that path. They fought a great deal. And eventually he went for the Shin path, the Pura path. At the end of their lives, they had not spoken for several years. This monk went to see him on his deathbed, and what did Koboi say? He said, so-and-so, you were right to follow the pure land path.
And when he passed, he left instructions to have a scroll hung in the main alcove in the temple that he had written. And it was now more enough. Fifteen, sixteen generations, a hard-boiled them. But the vow was greater than anything sectarian, any human limitation. And he embodied the way. Before I left his hand, he had very bad arthritis. <coughs> I gave him a pair of slippers, fluffy slippers, which looking back on it now, was a rather shameful gift after he had allowed me to live in his temple for a whole year. But after he passed and I went to visit his temple, his wife, who was still alive and living there, she gave me something of his. He had a beautiful ceramic paperweight that he always had on his desk. And she said to me, It is not what we say, 
given to us. Mind to mind, heart to heart, but most significantly, body to body. And for this reason, the great king teacher, Kanekogai, said, we receive the understanding of Buddhism in the mind, but we receive the Dharma with our bodies. Thank you very much. <laughs>